1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Charlie Jeffries, the author of Teenage Dreams, Girlhood Sexualities in the U.S. Culture Wars. Charlie, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to to talk about the book with you. Could you start out by talking a little bit about how this book came to be and how you started to, well, write about the U.S.? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So there's kind of a couple
0: ways in, I suppose, one being a personal and the other being the kind of academic trajectory. And, you know, on a personal level, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the US, but then my family moved to the UK when I was 11. So just before my own teens. And so, you know, from that age, there was always a fascination and concern uh, on my end of you know what what the differences were between my life experiences as a teenager in the UK and those of the friends that I left behind and uh, family members and so there was it's kind of always there was always that you know and I was a teenager in the period that I was writing about as well and so there was you know kind of a living uh fascination going on with with that history as it unfolded and then there was another kind of key moment when I was uh, maybe confusingly a student of an undergraduate student of American studies over here in the UK and on a year abroad back in DC, which is, you know, the closest city to where I grew up. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, I was studying abroad, you know, expanding my mind, going back to the place. I I went to elementary school and uh, was in a class on sexual politics uh, and people in the class started talking about the price of birth control. And they started talking about how, you know, one of the inequalities of the US healthcare system was that you might find a kind of birth control that suited your health. And obviously, there can be, you know, a real range of of impacts of of birth control on your health. And then you could find out that birth control method. And then it would be, co- be prohibitively expensive. And I was sitting there, a 21-year-old living in the UK, absolutely baffled what they were talking about. And it was this chilling moment where I realized a kind of a crystal clear difference between, you know, one experience I'd, I'd and, and that of my peers in the UK versus what adolescence looked like in the US or what sexual coming of age looked like without access to some of that healthcare. And that is absolutely not to lionize the UK um healthcare system especially right now or or you know to say that a, a british adolescent uh sexual coming of age is not fraught you know but that aside this was a crystal clear moment where i realized you know this yeah that that kind of interest and and with the differing experiences became more uh, clear to me and then you know also on the kind of personal front when i started researching this project i it was a long time ago now but I was 24 and so I really wasn't that far out of my own adolescence and I still very much identified with the politics of girlhood and so I had what felt like a very live stake in uh some of these histories and you know a, a decade on I still do you know r- relate and I'm invested in the politics of girlhood and uh, girl cultures and some of the musical cultures that appear in this book as well are a big part of my life. And so, yes, just this kind of building and unfolding personal stake in the history that led me to it. And then just in practical uh, kind of studying terms, I was the first major research project I undertook uh, was a history of of, of women in ACT UP and, and in AIDS activism in the U S and that was, uh, in doing that research, I came across a piece written by act up on the history of Dr. Joycelyn elders, who was the first black surgeon general of the United States in the Clinton administration. And this, this article by act up was detailing her, um, the way that she was fired by Clinton, uh, under pressure from Republicans, uh, in Congress for advocating, For masturbation as a as a part of comprehensive sex education on World AIDS Day in 1994, and as I read more about this history, I realized that she hadn't even come to that event to advocate for that particular thing to be taught. She was asked by a journalist and and pressed by a journalist to to admit that this might be a part of safe sex education in the age of AIDS, and that you know conceding to that was enough for an absolute uproar in Congress in the days that followed. And uh, just a few days later, she was dismissed by Clinton uh, from her role. And I was so shocked that this history, upon reading this, was not a part of our larger understanding of the sexual scandals of the 1990s. And it also struck me very clearly how, and I, I think this is less true now but certainly at the time there was it felt to me that there was a lack of understanding of the damage done to uh, reproductive and sexual rights in liberal or democratic administrations and that there was more to clinton's legacy that needed to be unpacked and then the more i excavated that the more i realized that of course the obsession with adolescent sexuality or the the potential incendiary nature of of gesturing to specifically girlhood sexualities in u.s politics really expanded in either direction and I saw this as being increasingly just a huge part of the history of the us culture wars. And I that was what led me to decide that there was a, a place, an important place to uh, write a history on you know trying to answer the questions, a, why have the us culture wars, continue to circle around girlhood sexualities why have they been so central to so many of the debates of the late 20th and early 21st century and secondly what then can this lens of girlhood sexualities teach us about the nature of the culture wars as a whole how do they skew or trouble the way that we've understood these debates and the the kind of rigid sides of the culture wars um and and that that
1: led me down this road (laughs) well and and like as you're talking I'm thinking about all the parallels to right now in the right what's happening right now in the U.S. with reproductive rights and this that's still it's still the idea of teenage and girls right like young women having sex and that when young women have you know I like I think the, like, a lot of that argument is like, it's going to be young teen mothers who are going to need somebody to take care of that baby and we're going to do it white week, right? So that whole idea, like we're still on that road. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And
0: I think it's, it's an ongoing conversation that just like shifts to kind of get around what uh, you know where there's not space to be reactionary about something it will just shift and take on another guise right so it's an abortion is one that we just keep circling back to of course um but of course there's massive attacks and, you know well for instance in the history of this book you know where where i leave off uh you know just before of 2008 there's it's still acceptable to, it's there's still a hunger in the media for an obsession with uh, that just the nature of like out, outright expressions of adolescent sexuality. And maybe there's less tolerance for that particular debate now, or it's become tired for a while. But I certainly note, you know, towards the end of the book and in the epilogue that uh, that there's now in a more, you know, if, if there's not a, a hunger for a conversation about teenagers having sex, the conversation is, is certainly pivoted as well to include uh, a lot of consternation and um Debate over the rights of transgender teenagers to exist. So the idea that teenagers and children have any stake in their own experience of gender or their gender expression, that is certainly, um, you know, repeated similar patterns that I saw in the history uh, that this book covers of, you know, People who are liberal on other things suddenly know this is my line. This is where I have reactionary politics to do with the gender and sexuality of youth. Um, And of course, the predictable uh, far right reactions to anything outside of uh, normative uh, gender and sexuality as well.
1: So you start out with kind of looking at the new right and how uh, they look at the teenage girl and, and that idea of sort of, The epidemic of the teen pregnancy. So can can you talk about um, kind of where you enter this conversation and what is going on in the U.S. at that time with some of these cultural panics? Absolutely. So that uh, the
0: so-called teenage pregnancy epidemic that you mentioned uh, was how the media conversation about rising uh or the perceived rise in teenage pregnancies uh was being discussed in the late 1970s into the early 1980s and the reason you know that that uh social panic is really the reason that I start the book where I do with the election of Reagan because even though this history you know racialized sexualized uh girlhoods you know is is a history we could look at throughout all of US history the the thing that really switches it is that um the conversation in the 80s uh you've got a really outspoken kind of uproar about teenage pregnancy rates in the mainstream media and this is something that Reagan really capitalizes on in his campaign uh for the presidency. And it is, you know, that which inspires him to coin the the malignant idea of the welfare queen, which he uses to garner votes. So sort of making this distinct connection between the uh sexual and reproductive lives of young women of color is who he was specifically gesturing to, though it was coded uh barely in the way that he spoke about it. Um, and the economy and uh US the US family as a whole so in doing so he was speaking to both sides of the new right who you know the economic uh conservatives and the social conservatives who really built that movement and and put him in office um but it's something that you know the it's there's a few things about it that really inspired you know that my sort of reason of starting the book here one is that the way that he talks about it is, is quite coded. And so it's a continuation of an obsession with uh, protecting specifically young white women uh, from being influenced by what were perceived as Black sexual cultures or behaviours. And so while the new right and and Reagan were framing this concern about teenage pregnancy as being a sort of ostensibly race-neutral conversation, actually what uh, was kind of just under the surface of that was the, the, the data at the time showed that it was actually young white women who were getting pregnant in higher numbers. And so that suggested to me that the more uh, overt conversation uh, about the influence of black sexuality on young white women, what was happening in the mid-century uh, culture wars around desegregation, which is really what I kind of think, you know, even though I think the U.S. culture wars span the entirety of U.S. history, uh, this particular era could be seen as starting around those debates over the desegregation of schools. Those conversations had become more coded by this time, but they were still about the protection of young white women. So I realized we are in a new era here where there is not the same uh, acceptance of some of those overt conversations in the press, but the there is a coded conversation and teenage pregnancy and concern around that is being used to have the same kinds of, express the same kinds of concerns over uh, what is happening to uh white girlhood sexuality and then on top of that um the and so it's the fact that it's the same conversation that's been happening since desegregation but it's happening in this more coded way uh to me suggested we've entered a new era here where a a very intense debate is happening about girlhood sexualities but in, in a different kind of discourse in a in a slightly more hidden discourse. And that suggested to me that this was an important place to start this project then.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> it makes me think like, because one of the other things that you bring up and I think fits into this, like thinking about the Reagan era and many of the laws and policies are, um, parental control right how do we get like like there's a lot of things that start happening um in the 1980s around that idea that parents need to have a little more control um and so like how does that how do you see that kind of fitting in with what you're taught right it fits really well with your what you're talking about here absolutely
0: so It's the the focus on parental control that was a major part of discourse about adolescent sexuality in the 1980s. This really uh, was a a part of the new rights push to, uh, you know, really put the emphasis on the U.S. family and the connection between a strong U.S. family unit, which, of course, in their imagining was uh, white and middle class as well, and heterosexual, of course, and teenage girls and their sexual behaviors was and, and the the evidence that their sexual mores and patterns were changing, particularly those of, of white young women in this era, uh, according to the data, was going to impact the U.S. family, which would thus impact the U.S. economy. And this comes out of you know, the Cold War emphasis on the image of the family as a part of what uh, you know America had to teach to the world. And it very much again relied on specific gender roles in the family for bolstering the US economy. And teenage girls acting differently, a new generation acting making different choices was seen as a major threat to this. And so there was a you see a real push both in conversations amongst conservatives in, you know, kind of grassroots spaces about we we need to put out more uh writings and and pamphlets and literature for parents on how to control their children and make sure that their their daughters come under control. Uh, But then also you see it in policy as well. And so that's really the era where you see, um, leading up to Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, uh, recently overturned, of course, as well, the uh, focus on parental consent or Notification for a youth's abortion, and that is, uh, yeah, a major part of this history as well. Because it was, you know, I think we think of the '80s as as being very overtly about this history of the New Right, but the the conversations are sometimes surprisingly again coded. So Reagan, once in office, even though he absolutely uh, rode the wave of support from the New Right, once in office. Uh, He was more desirous of of being aligned with economic conservatives, uh, seen as a more kind of intellectual cohort than with the uh, Christian anti-abortion movement. And so he continued to kind of throw them bones, but he was he didn't really want to be massively associated. And in fact, the anti-abortion movement were very disappointed in him for not doing more uh, in their fight against abortion. So. By contribute by 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 contributing to uh, allowing laws and policies to pass that suggested parental control for abortion, um, which did have a material impact on young people's access to abortion, and that a series of, of laws came in that showed that that made a precedent that it was in fact constitutional to uh, have a, a statute on your books that meant that. People under 18 had to get consent or notification from a parent uh, to, to, to get an abortion. So this was one area that so, yeah, again, it comes back to this history of there there wasn't the uh, overt conversations about um, sexuality that you might expect in this period, partly because of the obscenity wars that were going on in this period. It was actually very difficult to talk about sex, frankly, uh, no matter where you were on the political spectrum. In this period. And so subtly bringing in uh, laws and policies that suggested the importance of parental control over sexuality was one of the main ways that uh, adolescent sex was uh, restricted and um, surveyed in this period.
1: And so you move into this, like you're saying, you talk about kind of, it's hard for anybody to talk about sex, right? And so, and you move into that, like that sexual, your chapter, your third, your second, or is it third chapter, I can, second or third, I can figure it out, um, goes into that idea. And I love that one of your focuses is Judy Bloom, right? And looking at, I was like, oh, this makes me so happy. Um, But can you talk about like that? This is like, what is going on? with talking about like that idea of talking about sex and and the role that Judy Bloom kind of plays or, or or gives an example of what is going on at this time. Absolutely.
0: Yeah I uh found that the Judy Bloom discovery within this was was really fascinating to me too. Uh Having seen the books as a young person, and probably getting exactly the kind of excitement from it that conservatives were so worried that young people would have—you know—seeing that kind of a uh, uh, graphic description of of you know um, adolescent sexual experience, and it was it, the the I think the the place that Judy Bloom has in all of this is that it's it's kind of twofold. So on one level it's a great example of how the obscenity wars, which were, um, you know, ostensibly, you know, they started being about, you know, what we might call, you know, obvious examples of of what could be understood as obscenity or pornography that were being cracked down on uh, by the right during this period. And the fact that, the language of those obscenity warriors in the 1980s very much said to adults in America you need to look further than pornography to find you know malignant influences on young people you need to look at their textbooks you need to look at the library books they check out you need to look at their children's games you need to look at tv shows so it was this the fact that the obscenity war that was specifically focused on the potential impact on children of sexual information was looking, was casting a very wide net outside of more obvious expressions of sexuality. And so Judy Bloom, being an author who was writing, uh, and most of her books were actually published in the 70s, which I think is important here too, but they're cracked down on in the 80s, right? So there is a moment where, um, before the age of AIDS and the hold that the new right had in their uh, reaction to the sexual politics of the 1980s, there was a moment where there was a higher degree of acceptance across the U.S. political spectrum of young people receiving sex education, of young people accessing sexual information through a novel, say, but that that really changes with the political turn in the 1980s. So suddenly these books that have been chilling on a library shelf for a decade are not okay. And throughout the 80s, Judy Bloom was in the list of top five band authors in the US consistently. Um, and she also, you know, plays into this history uh, because again, the the young people in her novels were predominantly white young women, middle class young white women who had access to, you know, in the stories, Planned Parenthood and really accepting parents and uh, higher education. And in amongst all of that, we're also becoming sexually liberated and we're having empowered sexual experiences in the way she depicts them. And it wasn't dominating or ruining their lives. It was a sort of, you know, fleeting, somewhat insignificant part of their youth as they go on to, you know, whatever the next stage of their life is. And this absolutely enraged the members of the new right, and the anti-textbook organizations like the Gobbler family, who came after her work. Because, as I mentioned, there's a pattern in this history, leading off of its, its roots in the era of desegregation, which is that a lot of these debates are are social panics around the sexuality of young white women. It's they already have assumptions about how the sexualities of young women of color function, and they are worried about the impact and influence on young white women. So this is another way that uh, you know, Judy Bloom really ties into this history.
1: Yeah, I will just give a shout out to Judy Bloom because like I I love that because as a person who came of age in the 1980s and Judy Bloom was, like, all, like, I read everything I could get my hands on, but it was, it was, like, this is banned, this is banned, this is banned, like, getting the, yeah, oh, they were all, right, like, <laughs> I remember, I remember, <laughs> it was, right, but they were all, like, you know, like, I could read forever, but I couldn't read it for school, I had to sneak and read it, right, or like tiger I mean I have a list um or you know uh, there was like I well, one of the books there was masturbation in it be- so you couldn't read that right um so G- yes Judy Bloom was a godsend yeah absolutely um, I think I I didn't read them until
0: I came to the UK and probably I I remember reading them in the first house that I lived in here so it definitely was like yeah 11 or 12 and uh they were certainly easy to get out, out of UK libraries um, and, uh, my mother who's British was like, oh, I remember these, like, these are great. And so, you know, on the British front, you know, they, 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 they weren't particularly, uh, scandalous, but yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely wild.
1: Yes. On the, and the American front passing the Judy Bloom, like, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret book around, right? So everybody gets to read it. What's a, what's actually a thing, uh, and along those lines, like you also, and you alluded to this, but can you talk in the 1980s? The, the, I don't know if it's, uh, oh, it's overused to say everything's a war against, but the d- pornography debate was really important, right? And was really influential. So, and you, and you talk about that as well. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on with the debate around pornography? In, in in both conservative and liberal circles.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's a really uh, pivotal part of this history because of the, not only the role of, of teenagers within those debates, even though that's important, but because it is a really unfortunately neat example of, of the way that, you know, the, the culture wars, uh, understanding of liberal versus conservative doesn't, really work all that often when you look at specifically the history of sexuality. Uh, The the main um, aspect of that in in the book being that uh, looking at the way that the feminist anti-pornography movement uh, ultimately collaborated with uh, members of the new right and the anti-obscenity movement in a bid to ban pornography. And the way that that, uh, the, they took that, that leap and that chance a completely backfired not only in the um you know the divisions within the feminist movements that uh, occurred as a result but also because of course the new right kind of steals their research and their um legitimacy and absolutely twists it to to put forward very um you know restrictive uh, policies and and recommendations so it's it's, but it also works on both sides. So, so so-called so pro-sex feminists who are supposed to be, uh, you know, who are on the, uh, the other side of these debates with anti-pornography feminists also collaborated with uh, kind of freedom of speech activists. And, you know, I think sitting from where we are now, we can see that perhaps like liberal collaboration with, you know, Free, academic freedom or freedom of speech warriors uh, has also gone in, down a pretty pernicious road, and so it's just an example of how these overlaps happened in this history, and how that you know the history of sexuality really shows us how messy and constantly overlapping and entwined the culture wars really are.
1: And so, from that, you move into my favorite spots, um, that sort of cultures of girlhood, right? Like what is also going on when we move into, especially into the nineties and the riot girl and, and what's happening. So can you talk a bit about that? Um, that what these girls are, then what girls start doing to, you know, and we use girls loosely, but to really push against what's going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the, that part of the book, uh, Kind of about halfway through, it pivots to to look at the 90s and the girl cultures that go from the underground necessarily uh, that start to be noticed and, and, you know, garner fascination from wider culture and then really move fully into a mainstream girl culture that I think a lot of people really associate with with the 1990s uh, and 2000s. And what's important in this history is that it's where we see young people join the debates themselves. So I do show in earlier chapters on the 80s that actually there are young people involved in activism in the 80s, too. But it certainly explodes in the 1990s with the uh, proliferation of scenes, um, you know, these political documents of, you know, written by young people and the musical culture, uh, including riot girl where young people uh take up you know put out their voice into and interrupt the conversation that's happening about their sexuality about their reproductive rights and uh you know changes the nature of this discourse forever and um you know I think it's a really important part of this history because you know not only do you see Young people taking part in these debates for the first time in a real way, but you also see the way that the uh, th- that was that that even that kind of platform was impossible in the wider culture. So the kinds of conversations that were safe in activist cultures once they were you know, proliferated by the press, uh, the mainstream press. And once TV shows and popular magazines had gotten a hold of these underground cultures, uh, the the kind of radical conversations about gender and sexuality were, uh, were not able to translate into wider culture. So it shows, you know, how, how much resistance there still was, even if we look at the 90s and go, wow, that was a real sexual turning point in, in U.S. history it's also, we see the limitations of that as well.
1: Right. And what, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is the ways in which young women then were also using their bot, right? So there's an attack on their bodies and they're like, Talking about their bodies in very personal ways, but they're also physically using their bodies in these personal ways to sort of express their sexuality and to express their identity and their frustrations with what's going on in the world at this point, which was something that was, you know, was another way to kind of push against what was happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, does did this chime with your research, Rebecca? As well, I was curious, thinking, you know, <laughs> specifically knowing that this is your area of expertise and and experience, how how this chapter chimed with with your understanding of of
1: of that movement. No, I really like. I have been thinking about a lot about like it. It has like I appreciated reading your book because it made me like thinking about what um. A lot, too, of people who are still continuing to kind of write zines or in that world, right, I'm very interested in that world, really started, whether they associated with riot or not, started sometime in the 90s, right? And I think about especially now with what has gone on, we had, you know, um, our 70s, we had women, you know, um, thinking about abortion rights, right? We had that going on. But, like, what was going on in the 90s? like you know situating like all the things that were happening in the 90s to make this kind of avenue of expression also something open to young girls like this is the place and this is the way and then it becomes a continued way to kind of push against the mainstream like when you think about what you're saying like once riot girl and zines kind of entered mainstream entered into sassy entered into these spaces riot girl kind of shut down right they were like we're done and there's a lot of debate around that <laughs> Um, whether that should have happened, whether it shouldn't have happened. Um, but it's really interesting to see that platform as one that people continue to use as a kind of site of resistance and how the 90s really exploded at that time. Yeah,
0: completely. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I think um, I, it's, it's important, I think, that you raise the people who did or didn't associate it, it with it as well because i i definitely found you know well, that it was riot girl um, and the uh the 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 members of riot girl who were kind of most um embraced by or you know for better or for worse by the mainstream press even though that absolutely was against their wishes also uh led to an understanding that uh the the kind of movement of young people in punk scenes across the country was a predominantly white and middle class one, which is absolutely, as we know, not true. Um, but that was the one that, of course, a mainstream culture uh, grew fascinated with and turned into popular culture versions. And yeah, so there's, there's that history there too, I think of, you know, um, it's important to think both of those who identified with Ride Girl and those specifically um, young women of color who had, had good reasons not to as well.
1: Well, and even the young women of color who do identify as either Riot girl or within punk, um, it can, like, what you're kind of talking about continues that narrative that their stories don't matter, right? What we're afraid of is the white girls talking about these things, the, you know, white girls and sexuality and sexual identity. And so, um, like, young people of color or even queer young people can talk about those things but we don't need to worry about that because that's not that, that's not going to save our you know save our nuclear family exactly yeah completely and and then another thing you move into which I think she is so important especially now since Clarence Thomas is still on our Supreme Court Um, and I remember these trials but like what then starts to happen with like, with Third Wave, with Anita, like you, so you talk a bit about um, what happens with Anita Hill, right? And so can you talk a little bit then, and Joycelyn Elders, you mentioned earlier, but can you talk a little bit about what these two women, African-American women, and their kind of role in what you see is happening in these sort of Girlhood culture wars and and what happened with them,
0: absolutely. And I, I think this the, both of those women's experiences actually speak to what you just mentioned, which is you know why why the '90s. What you know, if, if young people, have, as we know, always had you know underground print cultures, underground musical experiences, and and um, you know forms of resistance. Why in the '90s did it? Was there the the kind of uh, the the real wave of this, so to speak, and these uh you know the the sexual scandals and the um sexual political culture of the 1990s is is i think really the key to to understanding that it was just unlike kind of how i characterized the 80s as being more um covert careful conversations that were you know trying to pass kind of egregious things in the 1990s these conversations are are much more explicit and um Conversation and it's almost like as a, a backlash I think to the obscenity war of the nineteen eighties a, a backlash to anti pornography movements. Um, however, as we know from Anita Hill and Joyce and Elder's experiences, the the sexual culture of the nineteen nineties is like no more actually accepting or, um, uh, or free. It's it's simply more explicit and. Uh, the experience of Anita Hill that was you know broadcast out on C-SPAN for all to see and the undeniable Uh, treatment that she experienced not only uh the the one that she was detailing whilst working with clarence thomas but the the grilling from the senate from an all-white male senate was something that young women of this period couldn't ignore as you know everything else about the culture is telling you you know there's this really commodified girl culture you know trying to sell girl culture back to teenagers and saying you know you can be anything just buy this lip gloss and um then they're watching the news and seeing, uh, you know, a lot of young women seeing someone who looked like them, who was about as successful as it gets, still experiencing, you know, this outright uh, racism and sexism. And that absolutely sparked uh, change and movements. And I hasten to add, not just among young women as well. I mentioned in the book that, um, you know, one of the first kind of responses, um, is, is, is mobilizing amongst older black feminists. And there's, you know, a lot of kind of intergenerational conversation in this period as well. Um, and yeah, of course this doesn't just resonate with, with, you know, teenagers and young women in the period, but it's, uh, certainly, uh, Uh, we can point to uh, Rebecca Walker, um, the author Alice Walker's daughter, who was at the time a college senior, uh, penned an article um, uh, for Ms. Magazine about, um, you know, why this moment needed to be a call to action uh, for young women of color in the U S and going on from that, she formed the uh, third wave uh, direct action group, which has had a number of names, but still still going now. And that, that group started to organize, uh, you know, a, 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 not just, uh, I found, in response to Anita Hill's treatment, but also in response to police brutality at the time. And so, you know, I think that um, was a part of this history that I, I thought I hoped would be really inspiring to uh, any young person who kind of stumbles across this book or this history. Um Because it shows how, you know, even before the technology that we have today, young people have been, you know, forming massive resistance movements to a lot of the um, sadly ongoing uh, crises that young people are organizing against uh, today. And so hopefully showing, you know, that history and a lot of these people, a lot of the people who formed Third Wave are still alive, still organizing, still writing. And so... I hope that there's that, that there's some chance for intergenerational ac- activism in the future too.
1: No, I have to say that when, like what you're saying is so important because I think we often hear people just saying, well, young people aren't active, active now, or they're not active. Like they were in like the sixties or the seven. And I'm like, Young people are super active and they always have been like, you just don't know where, right? You just need to find, like, right? Like, just because it's a different way, it's still, there's that activism. um, And the other thing, because you mentioned right at the beginning, this idea of the importance of looking also at, like, the complications with Clinton's legacy, I mean, we have to kind of talk about Monica Lewinsky as well and and what that meant for young women, right? Like young women and teenagers and sexuality. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you saw going on there? Absolutely. Um,
0: So what was really interesting about, you know, the responses to what happened to Monica Lewinsky uh, was that this you could really see it in in uh, you know it unfolding the way that feminists, young feminists in particular made tactical decisions and again like just showing how much the the young people in this history are a huge you know, like absolutely political actors absolutely a part of this conversation um, absolutely aware you know very very politically I- engaged and, and intelligent and. You see the the conversations happening amongst young feminists where a tactical decision is made to support Bill Clinton uh, around the time of his impeachment because the alternative was seen as so much worse at the time. And so you you kind of see that there's like where like political sacrifice or compromise is made because of, you know, what Clinton had followed or, you know, what potentially was hiding right behind Clinton. and um, that, that, uh, Republican majority in Congress at the time, you know, a- after, um, 1994. So it was really, you see that, that, uh, feminists of many ages realized that supporting Clinton had to be a tactical move. And so that's, that's kind of the main, um, you know, that, that was something that really hit me was how sad of a compromise, you know, we, we've had to make historically, um, to, to avoid even more restrictions on reproductive rights, but also just how angry it made me to see how this man, who in his legacy had brought in the most punitive welfare reform that deliberately targeted uh, young women of color and their uh, reproductive and sexual rights, and the most stringent abstinence sex education that the U.S. had, had seen to date and the most funding for it. So really, he's so responsible for these legacies, um, partly to, you know, as a SOP to the right, but partly to kind of clear his own name and the things associated with him since his campaign. Um, and this was just another example in this history of, wow, you know, in, in the wake of doing all of that, you know, you're restricting the uh, sexual uh, and health autonomy of some of the most marginalized people in the country. And you were enjoying all of the freedom from the fight for sexual liberation that these very people have given to you. And it just makes me so livid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rightly so. Rightly so. Right. And we can continue to see the repercussions of that, you know, today. And, and then, you know, Clinton's book ended by the Bushes. So you move into then looking at sort of, the Bush right the second the Bush administration and what is going on with sexuality and education, um, in that administration. So could you talk a little bit about what you were looking for and getting at with that? Definitely, yeah.
0: So kind of moving into the two thousands and the Bush administration, uh, that to me again it's the continuation of this arc I I, I saw unfolding in the book of you know m- the conversation moving from the covert. Uh, Uh, coded conversations about teenage pregnancy and welfare and AIDS, but never really talking about, you know, what do we think about teenagers having sex in the eighties gradually, you know, bursting out over the nineties and then bringing us into the two thousands and the Bush administration, a super explicit conversation about that very question at the heart of it. What do we think about teenagers having sex? What, what, what do we think morally, politically, this means? And what was interesting or important to me in kind of telling that part of the history was that I think there's a lot of public memory associations of the Bush era with some of the most overt, uh, restrictive um, abstinence movements in particular. And, you know, that's absolutely true. So this is the era where you see, you know, um, increased funding for abstinence education that pours not just into high school-based sex ed programs, but to massive uh, abstinence movements that are, you know, extra governmental. And you really see kind of unique uh, ways that that, that those um, abstinence messages put out in purity balls and and purity concerts. Um, And you also see Young pop stars really being kind of mobilized by their management teams to be the face of sexy virginity, as um, you know, Jessica Simpson has described her experience recently. Um, However, I wanted to take all of that and and tell that history, but I also wanted to say, look back now at the rest of the book and see how we got here. This was not a two thousands obsession. This, you know, the conversations around hypersexualization, they. Can be traced throughout this history. The abstinence movement can be traced all the way through this history, and in fact, Bush's his specific support for abstinence was simply an an expansion of what Clinton had brought in. And I think that's uh, you know one of the the, the kind of important uh, little historical moments I want to point to is you know Bush's support for abstinence would not have been possible without the tens of millions um, that Clinton poured into it. Um, and without the explicit language that Clinton had, you know, and his administration had used to detail what abstinence education had to teach, he simply expanded on that. And so it's, it's there's sort of two sides of that coin that I wanted to, to tell with that history of the 2000s. It both is what you think it is, but also
1: came, perhaps came from unexpected places. Or it was just Right. There's yeah. a reason we got to this. Yes, it wasn't just because of what happened in the 80s. And you're, it's that. And, and it's also this point where you get things like um, reviving Ophelia, right? This idea that young women are in this like... This crisis space and, and, and girlhood studies, right? Like these kinds of things start to, we need to kind of pay attention to young girls um, and young women and what is going on. And so how do you see like that kind of discussion and narrative also Um, connected to some of that history that you're talking about
0: absolutely so the uh reviving ophelia is this this book which uh you know it's it starts a kind of wave of, of of girlhood studies in the academy um in the 90s and 2000s which is really uh you know, it's, there's, there's uh, a lot of scholars before me have detailed the fact that there was these kind of two twin narratives in the nineties the and two thousands of girl power versus girls in crisis and girl power, you know, under that, you might see, you know, a media obsession with riot girls media uh, that, you know, conversations around Buffy and Britney and these other, um, you know, often white bastions of, of, you know, girlhood, sexual empowerment that were versions that were accepted in 1990s culture. But then on the flip, there's the girls in crisis literature, which is, yeah, I think this, this text reviving Ophelia is really a Mary Pfeiffer is, is a key one for that because, you know, she's coming ostensibly from this place of concern of, you know, I, I, I treat young women and they're, they're not well, and they're they're have a, a crisis of self-esteem and they're, um, you know they're they're very sexually disempowered in this new sexual climate um which you know spawned an entire movement of of concern over uh, you know what what teenagers again young white women young white middle class women should be doing and that's really where you know um sexualization and self-esteem are, were really linked in that history and that really uh, kind of gets back to this question of how teenage girls, specifically white teenage girls sexuality is seen to impact on the wider economy. Because, you know, if you think about sexualization, this is supposed to be what you do in your, you know, about things that happen in your private life, but self esteem, the the literature that came off the back of reviving Ophelia, and the studies, many studies by big think tanks, etc, about young women's self esteem, and its link to sexuality was kind of saying, well, this is not just a problem for, you know, any sexual harm, they might, they might experience how will they feel about themselves and will this affect them getting into college and running for office and living out these this kind of liberal trajectory of of success so it's um you know really the the, the conversations about sexualization uh, were happening and what turns into the, the language of hypersexualization in the 2000s in response to even more sexually graphic popular culture it's really you see again Across the political spectrums, texts by both liberals and conservatives alike about, you know, will w- what is the impact on potentially negative sexual experiences young people are having as they're having them earlier or as they're impacted by TV shows on the kind of sexual citizen they're going to be on the kind of. Uh, you know um part of the workforce they're going to be and sometimes that came from a really reactionary standpoint you know how will they ever get a husband and sometimes that came from a more liberal feminist standpoint of you know will this impact their ability to enact feminisms as you know us liberal feminists have have, have seen so yeah really there's uh a lot of a lot of links between um you know a, a lot of the, the concern that you see is, is very unifying across uh, the political spectrum um in this history as well
1: and so you you end at you know in 2008 you end after the bush right before we get into sort of our last um few presidencies so what do you see like um if you had to kind of talk that about like from 2008 into now or like you know even though like tw- like that a decade after like what what are you seeing or what kind of impacts of what you looked at here are you seeing now? Are you seeing over these past, that past sort of decade and a half? Yeah. Oh,
0: that's a great question. I think the, the kind of tantalizing, uh, frustrating thing about this history is that you could kind of never stop. Like you could just, you know, spend the rest of your life adding, adding chapters to this unfolding and going deeper, farther back in history uh, because it, it, you know, really, you um, you know this this is a long and unfolding history the way that, that young people's sexual choices are uh you know torn apart in, in the, the mainstream political debate um and other conversations are just projected onto young people and you've absolutely seen that in the years since this this history finishes uh one sort of uh flashpoint within the Obama administration would be the um Uh, social panic over sexting. So the use of smartphones by young people that kind of unfolds in that period had its own uh, social panic that unfolded. Some of it absolutely justified and some of it perhaps more, uh, fraught and, um, you know, that's, that's a a really tough thing about this history too. I found the whole time was balancing where like, yes, absolutely. This is really concerning and we do need to protect young people. We do need to support them and ways that that then tips over into, uh, you know, you see like a really racialized discourse or, um, control or the, uh, the thought that young people have no sexual autonomy and no ability to make, you know, sensible, uh, Thought-out decisions of their own in this in this sphere, so that was a, a flashpoint in that era. And then, you know, moving more c- close to now, I mean, gosh, during the Trump administration, there was just so many. And as I think I mentioned right up top, I do think that there was perhaps less of a hunger or a desire for conservatives to talk specifically about teenagers having sex, like they were in the '90s or 2000s in the Trump era and more to fixate on uh, young people's expression and understanding of their own gender. And so, you know, that, that meaning like real restrictions and harm to transgender and non-binary teenagers in this uh, more recent history. Although again, I show in the book that even though there wasn't the media fixation with trans young people that there is today, there certainly has been the restrictions and impact on them through policy. Um, for a much longer time. And certainly the bathroom bill was another moment that these kind of similar, uh, yeah, (laughs) devastatingly similar conversations are still happening. And, you know, that was really, um, you know, kind of showing that even when the conversation is about transness, you know, ostensibly it was, you know, um, people trying to crack down on the rights of trans people to use, bathrooms that corresponded with their gender um who were they concerned about especially where this this is schools well you know young cis girls in in bathrooms and we can presume young white cis girls as well from that too so it's it, it it really was showing that again this this you know uh the ostensibly race neutral uh conversations about um you know protecting young women or protecting childhood innocence you know if the conversation is about innocence um you know we can presume that it has a racialized history too
1: yeah um one of the things that i thought of throughout your book is especially like as you bring up thinking about um young people trans young people queer young people right um the AIDS epidemic and how that kind of played a role in a lot of this um, now in the United, in, 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 you know, the United States and other countries like the United States de- AIDS is not a death sentence, but when I would like, I remember strongly, you know, like people died and like, you know, and that also like pivoted and turned that conversation about sex and sexuality, especially if you're, queer and having sex right if you're gay and having sex and what that um what that sort of has pivoted to and uh, you know and we think about now and I think that that kind of fits in that with your discussion you know throughout this about young people having sex and and what you know um yes and and what that means and the morality right that idea the moral, and one of the things I think you touch on is the morality around it or it kind of thing mm-hmm absolutely yeah and i think that um
0: the advent of aids um at the start of this of this history and the like you know devastating timing of that with such a conservative government which made you know such a negative impact on you know uh, even even acknowledging the existence of the the disease and let alone putting any kind of resources or support into ending that pandemic um that absolutely Impacted on young people and, and on queer young people because then you already have a reactionary group uh, in, in power for uh, and you and they already have moral understandings of what like childhood innocence is supposed to look like and what the family is supposed to look like and then you have uh, you know AIDS on top of that which which you know pours fuel into their reactionary stance and their um, a lot of these groups indignance about young people accessing sexual information even though it might keep them safe no it just in, in the, the understanding of, of conservative social conservatives of the 80s is that information about sex from was akin to sexual harm and um this became even more um you know they really dug down on this and in, 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 in the wake of aids and so that's a really devastating part of this history is that that contributes to the uh silence around sexuality that could have, um, kept more young people safe.
1: Um, so we've been talking a long time. I mean, I could talk forever probably about this, but um, so I'll ask you my final question. Um, like what are you, you know, this has just come out. Um, is there anything you're working on now? Is there anything you, you know, what's your last plug, whether it's a new project for this or anything for this. So what do you want to plug?
0: Yeah, I just, well, I guess I, this is, uh, just come out and I'm, uh, certainly going to be trying to talk about it as much as possible in the coming months. And so I guess keep an eye for that, but I also have, um, um it's been a busy couple of years, I've had an edited collection uh, with Sarah Crook has just come out um, called, it's got a long title, let me recall it. It is uh, Resist, Organize, Build, um, Queer and Feminist Activism in Britain and the U.S. in the long 1980s. And so that's just come out with SUNY Press as well, or it's about to come out, I think, in a couple of days. And that is, uh, you know, ri- written by a, a number of amazing contributors about some of the linkages between uh, US activism around queerness and feminism and that which was unfolding in the UK. Um, and uh, so yes, yeah, so certainly a lot of overlaps with some of the concerns in this book too. So I would think that people who are interested in this
1: might also be interested in that. Awesome. Well, again, this was Charlie Jeffries, the author of Teenage Dreams, Girlhood Sexuality in the U.S. Culture Wars. Charlie, thanks for talking with me for new books in popular culture. It was such a pleasure and I had so much fun. Thank you so much, Rebecca.